our final uh, week of the book of Judges this week. I must admit, as I was preparing the sermon, I was wishing we'd started 1 Thessalonians a week earlier. Uh, but uh, every part of Scripture is breathed by God. We should always pray before we look at it, but uh, especially when we're looking at a difficult passage like this one. So I'm going to lead us in prayer. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you tell us that all Scripture is breathed by you and so is useful for teaching us, for correcting us, for rebuking us, for training us in righteousness. So as we look at this difficult passage that really shines a light onto just how horrible human beings can be, uh, we pray that you'll help us to understand it correctly. But more than that, we pray that you will teach us from it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I remember back at school, uh, which some of you can probably remember more easily than me, uh, in English we had to read books, and I remember we had to read the book The Lord of the Flies. There might be someone here who's currently reading The Lord of the Flies for school, but who else had to read The Lord of the Flies at school? Few people. Anyway, I'll tell you quickly, I'll ruin it for you. Basically, it's about a group of schoolboys who get stranded on a desert island with no, well not a desert island, it's sort of like there's plenty of food to eat and all that sort of thing, but on an island with no parents, no teachers, no laws. And for a while, it's great. And for a while, they love it. The boundaries of society that they remember sort of keep them in check, but they just have a good time. But then when they realise there are no consequences for their behaviour, things change. Uh, when they realise that there are no boundaries, things slowly descend into moral chaos. And the point of that book is, which is fiction, that is humanity. The point the author was trying to make is, that is what humanity is like. When there are no boundaries and no authorities, that is what happens to human beings. We, we start to look out for number one, and maybe we look out for the people we like and the people in our family or the people in our tribe, but other people's needs and other people's desires, well, that's their problem. And in particular, if you are the weak or if you're not part of the tribe, we'll look out because all sorts of things can happen to you at Survival of the Fittest. And the really sad thing is that that book, which as I say is fictional, it's borne out by history. See, our modern world loves to tell us that human beings are inherently good and, and that people hurting other people is sort of like an, an aberration. History just shows that is willful stupidity to think that. It is willful blindness to think that. And it's amazing that that idea has come out in the last century when human beings have killed more human beings than any other century in the history of humanity. See, history shows us that sadly, us human beings, we hurt one another. And that's not an unusual event, it's an all too common event. And when you remove the limits of society, when you remove the law, and especially the idea of consequences, well, selfishness goes unchecked, it gets even worse. And that is what has happened in the last five chapters of the book of Judges. So turn with me now, the book of Judges, our first reading before, and the key verse in this whole section is actually back in last week's passage, chapter 17, verse 6, I think I put it on your outline as well. This is what it says, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did whatever he wanted. Or literally, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now that sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Everyone gets to do whatever they want. Sort of like for teenagers, you know, mum and dad are away for the weekend. We've got the house to ourselves, we can have a party. It sounds great for a while, but then things get broken. 
And then people get broken. And suddenly this freedom is not all it's cracked up to be. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever he wanted. It sounds wonderful, but it's actually chaos. And it starts with religious chaos. That's the story of the book of Judges. Uh, People abandon God and worship idols instead. And we saw how bad it had gotten last week in chapters 17 and 18, where the Levites, so who were the Levites and the people of Israel? What was their job meant to be? They were to be the priests. So the Levites, the people who are meant to be spiritually leading the nation, what are they doing? They're basically selling themselves out to serve whichever idols you want to set up in your lounge room. They're basically priests for hire. So here is Israel, God's people, and each family is just worshipping whatever idol they think might suit them best. It's actually a lot like modern Australia, if you think about it, where people just pick or choose what suits them rather than actually seek after God's truth. But the thing is, that religious chaos always leads to moral chaos. Idolatry always leads to immorality. And so this last story in the book of Judges is sort of like the most horrible example of what happened to Israel in this time when they turned their backs on God. So come with me, it starts back in chapter 19. We read chapter 21 before, which actually doesn't make sense unless you've read chapters 19 and 20. Uh, But I chose not to, I think this is the only time I've ever done this. I chose not to have chapter 19 read out in church because it is just too awful to read out in church. So I'll tell the story, that sort of makes it now like the forbidden fruit where you all want to read it, doesn't it? Sort of like when people say, that movie is so bad that you shouldn't see it, but I want to see it. Well, you can read it, but it's a horrible, horrible story. But if it gets you reading your Bible. Anyway, uh, it starts with a Levite again. So again, we've got a man from the priestly tribe, but what he does is, it says, he acquires a woman as his concubine. Already you're thinking, hang on. So not his wife, he doesn't marry her, he buys her like his property. Now, after a while, she leaves him. We're not told why, but possibly, given what we see later in the story, because he's just such a horrible person, we don't know. But the picture you get in chapter 19, as it starts, is of a broken society, where even the religious leaders aren't following God's laws, where no one is faithful, where where all the sort of basic units of society are, are broken down. Now, I can't go through the whole story, but he goes to win her back, and willingly or unwillingly, we're told she goes with him. But as they travel, they can't get home to where they live in Ephraim by evening. So they enter the town of Gibeah, which is in the tribe of Benjamin. Now, you've got to understand, in that culture, hospitality is everything. There were no hotels. If you're traveling along and you can't get home, well, you just book in at a motel and, and stay there. Well, here, there was nothing like that. And so people were responsible for caring for travellers. So if a traveller comes into your town and no one offers them a bed for the night, that is a horrible disgrace in this culture. But that's exactly what happens here. This man, his concubine, sit there in the town square of this city and no one takes them in. And again, what we're meant to see is the moral decay of Israel. But eventually, another non-local, so another guy who's not from there but who's living there at the moment, He takes them in, he has pity on them, but then it gets awful and horrible. Some men of the town, it says, come and hammer on the door, demanding that the host turn out the man so that they can sexually assault him. It's awful, and it gets worse, 
And while our stomach turns, sadly, this is what happens when there is no law and order in a place. There are many parts of our world, even today, where chaos reigns and where men, but especially women and children, are abused and sexually assaulted and it is just normal. This is sadly just humanity at its worst. Sometimes people read this and go, how can this be in the Bible? Well, it's in the Bible because it's telling us about what humanity is like. Humanity at its worst. And as you read it, you're meant to see the parallels with what happened in a more famous story back in Sodom and Gomorrah. You know that story. Those cities that God actually wiped off the face of the earth for these sorts of crimes. But as you read this, the point is this is happening in Israel. This is the people of God who are doing this to one another. But it gets worse because to save his own skin, instead of going out, the man sends his concubine out to these men. And what she must have gone through is just awful. At the end of it, she's left for dead on the doorstep. These men of Benjamin were evil. You do not look for the good in them. They were evil. But so was this Levite. There are no good guys in this story. He opens the door to go in the morning, having had a good night's sleep. And he finds his concubine there, lying on the doorstep, and he has no compassion for her. He tells her to get up. And when she can't, he takes what is probably now her dead body, puts it over his donkey and leaves. As I said, there are no good guys in this story. And what the Levite does next makes you despise him even more because in sort of like the final indignity on this poor woman, he doesn't even give her a burial. He uses her dead body to stir up his revenge on the tribe of Benjamin. It's horrible. He cuts her up and sends out a piece of her to each of the 12 tribes. But I told you, this whole story is humanity at its worst. And yet sadly, even in the last century, if you know anything of history, you can think about what's happened in Germany, and what's happened in the Soviet Union, and what's happened in Rwanda, and what's happened in Uganda, and what's happened in Cambodia, and what is happening now in Syria under ISIS, and I could just go on and on and on. You see, 500 years of the growth of Western democracy based on Christian morality has given us a rose-coloured view of humanity. Living in Australia in the time we are in has given us a, a wrong, a distorted picture of the goodness of humanity. When the sad thing is that the book of Judges is actually more reflective of much of the history of our world and the way people treat one another. And sadly, it is generally women and children who bear the brunt of human depravity, which is why God is so adamant that Christians must have a special care for the widow and the orphan. Because you see, it's the weak in our society, the widow and the orphan represents the weak, the uncared for in our society, they are the ones who suffer most when society decays. And so Christians have to stand up and, and protect the weak. But back to the story, you can imagine the response as each of the 12 tribes get their parcel and they have a piece of a human body. They are appalled, and it's obvious to them that something has to be done. I mean, that's hopeful at least, isn't it? There is some sense of justice here, some sense of right and wrong in Israel. And so we're in chapter 20 now, come with me. Representatives of all the tribes except Benjamin come together with 400,000 fighting men, it says. But you have to be careful with numbers in the Old Testament, because the word for a thousand can be the word for a unit or a battalion but in any case the point is it's a massive army it is the biggest army Israel has pulled together 
in the whole book of Judges. Now, if you've been with us right through this term, as we've looked at Judges, you'll realise how incredibly sad that is. Because when they were fighting against God's enemies, you know, all those times where God said, now I do want you to fight, I want you to go and fight the Amorites or the Philistines or whoever, when they were fighting against God's enemies in wars God wanted them to fight, they were lucky to get three tribes join in or four tribes join in. But now when they're about to attack their own, they all show up. There's something sad about that, isn't there? About the way they are more angry at their own people than at actually meeting out God's justice when he wants it meted out. But worse than that, the Levite lies to them. He lies to them to stir them up, to not just take revenge on the men who did this, but on the whole tribe of Benjamin. He tells the truth, but he does that thing where he embellishes it to make himself look blameless and other people look worse. He doesn't include any part he played in handing his concubine over to save his own skin. And where we're told it was the worthless men of this city who did it, that becomes in his story the citizens or even the leading citizens of Gibeah did this. He manipulates the truth so the rest of Israel feel they have to go and take revenge for him. And so a civil war erupts, but instead of being a war of total justice, it's sort of a war based on half-truths and outrage, sort of like many, many wars in our history as well. But even at that point, the tribe of Benjamin have the opportunity to do the right thing. They could have stood up and stopped this war by doing the right thing. And what would the right thing have been? To hand over the guilty men so that justice might be done. But again, you see human sinfulness at work. They would rather protect guilty, evil people from their tribe than hand them over to someone else. There's something very human and sinful about that, isn't there? Where people will protect their own family or protect their own church or, or protect their own tribe rather than let justice be done. So anyway, we get to this strange moment where a massive army of Israelites is going to war with one of its own tribes and it seems that things are going well because Israel actually go and ask God what to do. Come with me to chapter 20, verse 17. It says, The Israelites, apart from Benjamin, rallied 400,000 armed men, everyone an experienced warrior. They set out, went to Bethel and inquired of God. The Israelites asked, who is to go first to fight for us against the Benjaminites? And the Lord answered, Judah will be first. Looks good, doesn't it? They're inquiring of the Lord, they're asking for the Lord's direction, but what happens? They go to fight, 400,000 against not many, and what happens? They get smashed. And then they say, what's gone wrong there? We'll do it again. And what happens? They get smashed again. And we're meant to think that is not what's meant to happen. If God is for us, and if you're fighting on the side of justice, th then who can be against us? But then you realise, have they ever actually asked God whether they should be doing this? And then you go back and read chapter 20, verse 17, and you realise, no, they didn't. They just presumed this is what God wanted. They just asked, who should fight first? They didn't ask, should we be fighting? You see, it's only after three defeats that they actually go and ask God, what he wants them to do. Look for verse 26. The whole Israelite army went to Bethel where they wept and sat before the Lord. They fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings to the Lord. Then the Israelites inquired of the Lord. And now, at this point, God says, well, now I'll give you the victory. And he does. They set an ambush. They defeat the Benjaminites. But what was going on there? 
What was God doing? Why didn't God just give them the victory? Well, it seems that God was actually using this battle not just to judge Benjamin, even though they deserve judgment, but actually to judge all of Israel. See, the rest of Israel presumed it was only Benjamin who deserved God's judgment. And Benjamin did need to be judged. What they did was awful. But the rest of Israel needed to be judged as well. They needed to be judged for presuming on God here. It's like they were treating God as sort of a a rubber stamp and just sort of telling God what they'll do and just asking Him to, to let them do it. But you see, more than that, they needed to be judged because this whole book of Judges... Yes, Benjamin's done something awful, but haven't we read about the Danites doing awful things and the tribe of Ephraim doing awful things and the people from Manasseh doing awful things and the people from Judah doing awful things? And you see, what you have here is the reality that God uses them fighting against one another, not just to judge Benjamin, but to judge them all. It's a small side lesson, but we need to remember the words of Jesus. Be careful in judging others. There is a place for judgment. But be careful to remove the log in your own eye before you dare remove the speck in someone else's eye. Be more concerned with your own sin before you worry about the sin of other people. Be slow to judge. Be quick to test your motives. But finally here, God gives them the victory. But then, by the way, I searched through here to have somewhere to put a joke in this sermon, to lighten the mood. But this story is just so awful, there's nowhere to go. Because here, Israel just did something else awful. They do something else God doesn't want. They don't just defeat the army of Benjamin. They try to wipe the tribe off the face of the earth. So they chase down every soldier and try to kill them. And then they wipe out whole towns and whole cities and whole families. There's this really sad irony here. Israel never went far enough when God wanted them to in judging the Canaanites. But when they're fighting against their own people, they have no mercy. And so eventually, there are just 600 men of Benjamin hiding at a rock left from this whole tribe. Which brings us to chapter 21 that we read earlier. Turn to chapter 21 now. Because as their blood cools a little, Israel realizes too late what they've done. They have effectively wiped out a whole tribe of their nation. And so they want to fix it. They repent. They want to help Benjamin recover, but in their anger, they made really foolish oaths to God. We've seen that already in the book of Judges and how well that's gone, haven't we? You see, they made an oath. They said, God, we will never let any of our daughters marry a Benjaminite. Well, now they're in a pickle. What now? You know, with just 600 men and no women, how can the tribe of Benjamin survive if they don't let any of their daughters marry a Benjaminite? Now, I won't go into it because we read it before, but basically, rather than repent of their dumb vow, rather than go to God and say, we have been so stupid and so sinful, what they do is they say, we'll keep our vow, but we'll do other awful things to do it. They are just like the Pharisees of Jesus' day who say, we've kept these little seemingly insignificant laws, but we'll ignore the big part of God's law about loving God and loving our neighbour. So, so that they don't sin by breaking their vow and letting their daughters marry a Benjaminite, what do they do? They commit murder. See how twisted they are? And they effectively involve themselves in slavery and human trafficking. But then they congratulate themselves and say, aren't we godly? We kept our word, no one let his daughter marry a Benjaminite. But to do that, they kill off the men of a whole town who didn't come 
and fight and they give their women to the Benjaminites as wives and then they encourage the men of Benjamin to basically hang around and steal women from the town of Shiloh. And then they say to those girls' fathers, hey, don't worry about it. You haven't done anything wrong. They stole your daughters. You didn't give them. That's going to be comforting to a father, isn't it? If it wasn't so sad, it would be a very, very funny story. But it's just horribly sad. And so you're meant to get to the end of this story, the end of this book of Judges, and you're meant to just say, wow. You're meant to be dumbstruck at the depths of their depravity. Yes, they've solved their problem, they've kept their vow, but they've solved it by ignoring every sense of morality and every sense of respect for God and of His laws. So God's people at this point are just totally twisted and perverse. And you're meant to say, what hope is there now? Surely God will abandon this unfaithful people now. But then in the last two verses, this is what I want us to focus on now, in the last two verses of this whole book, I think we see a glimmer of hope. Come with me now to verses 24 and 25, right at the end of the book. See, verse 24, it says, At that time, each of the Israelites returned from there to his own tribe and family, even the Benjaminites. Each returned from there to his own inheritance. You see, the point is, somehow, despite all of this sin, life went on. And amazingly, even after all their evil and all their chaos, God let them stay in this land He had given them. You see that word there, that final word in verse 24? Inheritance. It's such an important word. It's reminding us, they didn't go back to the land they deserved. They didn't go back to the land they had won. They went back to the land God had promised them and God had gifted them. And it's just a little reminder amidst all the chaos and all the sin that despite all their failure, God was still working, faithful. God is at work even when life is chaos. God is faithful even when His people are not. And that is a wonderful thing. But then in the final verse, there's another strange little glimmer of hope. Look at verse 25 now. That verse again. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever he wanted. Now, I said before, that was the problem, but it also just gives you a hint at God's solution. You see, what did they need? Our society says, oh, if we just educate people more, then they'd learn how to be better. That's just not true. The Nazis were some of the most well-educated people in the world. No, you see, what they need is a king who will lead them to God. And that's what all humanity needs. You see, a king who will say, you don't need to work out right and wrong for yourself, I will show you the way. And so in just a few generations, they got a king in David and Solomon, but even those great kings were deeply flawed. And of course, in the end, we know the real king was the one we read about in our New Testament reading before, wasn't it? The man who hung on a cross with the sign above him that said, the king of the Jews. You see, that is the king who came and dealt with the problem of our sin and who is the Lord we must follow, our Lord Jesus. So even back here, in the midst of probably the lowest moment in God's people's history, God was getting people ready for the real answer to all humanity's problems. See, God says, what people need is to follow the king who died for their sin and who now lives as our saviour and lord. That's what people need. 
Well, a few final thoughts on this passage, three quick lessons to draw. You'll see the headings on your outline. Have a look with me. The first is this. What you see here is the kind of society you get when everyone does whatever they want. It sounds great, doesn't it? I don't know if you went out to people and said, we're going to make Australia a place where everyone can do whatever they want. People go, that would be wonderful, total freedom. But what if what I want hurts you? And what if what you want hurts me? Because that is the reality of it. You don't get freedom and utopia. You get chaos and cruelty. You get a world where everyone suffers, and noticeably, especially women and children. So the first thing I want to say in response to this passage is, give thanks to God for good government. The New Testament tells us that even bad governments are better than none. You see, I think sometimes living in Australia, it'd be great for us to actually go and live in some parts of Africa or some parts of the Middle East for a while and we'll work out that advertising on the Opera House is not that big a problem, even if it is about a horse race. If that's all we've got to be outraged about with our governments, then we should give thanks to God. You see, give thanks to God that we live in a society where even with all its flaws, good order is maintained. Pray for your government. That is actually a command of Scripture. One of the few commands of the New Testament about what you should do when you meet together is pray for your government so that you can get on with living a quiet life that honours Jesus. So pray for your government. Secondly, you also see here what happens when a society abandons God. Without wanting to sound alarmist, At the moment, in the Western world, we are in the middle of one of the greatest social experiments of all time. On the whole, our nations have abandoned God. But the remnant of Christian ethics and morals survives in our laws to keep us in check. It's the remnant of Christian morals that says, honour the family. It's the remnant of Christian morals in our law that says, every person is worth protecting because every person is made in the image of God. If if you believe in evolution without a God, you don't believe every person is worth protecting. It's just survival of the fittest. It is Christian morality that says even the weak, even the disabled, even the person who can't care for themselves is worth protecting. You see, those Christian fundamentals, though, are already being eroded. And they might just hang around for my lifetime, but some of you have got to live beyond my lifetime. And in the future, what will happen to our nations, the West, if you like, when we have so removed ourselves from God and we've even forgotten the Christian morals that went with it? We need to pray for our nation. But here's the thing, what it needs is not us enforcing Christian morals on it. Too many Christians, I think, then think the answer is us telling everyone how they should live and imposing Christian morality on the world. Now, what our world needs, what our nation needs, is Christians proclaiming Christ to it. That's what it needs. The hope for our nation is not a return to Christian morality, because without faith in Jesus, that just produces Pharisees. No, it's that people would actually come to know Jesus and then would want to live His way in response. Which brings me to the final point, which is what we saw right at the end, and that is, despite our sin, God is faithful and God is at work to fulfil His promises. Our governments will fail. Our governments will make mistakes. Our society will walk away from God and allow evil to flourish and then they'll call it good. 
They will continue, there will continue to be injustice in our world, there will continue to be abuses of power in our world and as Christians we need to speak against those things. We should be at the forefront of calling for justice, we need to work against those things but in the end, those things will be here until Jesus returns and brings the Kingdom of God once and for all. So what is the right response to this whole book of Judges and all the sin we've seen? What's the right response when you go out there and see the sin of our fallen world and the sin of your own heart? The right response is to say, thank you God that you sent Jesus to be our King. And the right response is to say, thank you God that by Jesus' death and resurrection I have been forgiven for my sin. And then to say, and thank you God that I have the opportunity to share King Jesus with the people around me. And then to pray, come Lord Jesus because it is only when Jesus returns, when the true King is in power, it's only then that there'll be no more abuse and no more suffering and no more evil and no more tears and no more death. And that is what we look forward to if we trust in Jesus. Amen.